Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14, where the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. All right, well, I hope you're all keeping up with your reading. And if not, there's no condemnation. It's all good. But do read, because this will make more sense. But uh, so you know what? I was, if you are reading, uh, what I'm going to talk today about is uh, partic- particularly what we read yesterday and today. So uh, uh, I was going to call this Drop Dead or Drop Dead in the Wilderness or something like that. I was thinking, you know, something just to catch your attention. You know, because you, you would have read today that there was a group of people who were on their way towards the promised land, but they couldn't get in, right? So God basically says, you're all going to drop dead. You're not going to get in. But I decided to call it instead, enter his rest. Because we're not those who drop dead in the wilderness, right? So I, lo- I love Wayne's word. He's not leaving any of us behind. We're all going in. We're all experiencing stuff. We're going in. And, and the, the prophetic word, I love it when it, it, you know, the sermon and the prophetic word, all that stuff, it just all comes together. I love it. March 4th, there really is something. And, it, and it, we're entering into his rest. You know, we got work to do. We got stuff to do. The thing going on, but it's going to happen in rest, in the rest of God. So I, I've got a, a pretty ambitious thing to do in about 40 minutes. But so uh, I thought what I would do is give the whole sermon up front so that if I don't get there, you've got it all. And uh, this is it right here. This is the whole sermon in a nutshell. This is Jesus talking to some people, and he says, are you tired? He says, are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Has your, has your, your, your Christianity, your life, your relationship with Jesus, your, your, your walking out the word, has, has that become hard for you? Has it become a chore? He says, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. There's stuff to do. But work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I'm not going to lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. That's pretty cool. I mean, I know God wants me to do some stuff. There's some stuff in my life I'm going to do. We're going to do stuff. Life is full. It's full of activity. It's full of stuff. But you know you can do that stuff from a place of rest. You can do that from absolute contentment and absolute peace. You really can. And Jesus wants to teach us how. He wants to give that to us. That's the sermon. But we'll talk about a few other things in Numbers. Leviticus. More good stuff in the, in the Pentateuch, if you can believe it. So, so far, we've talked about creation. We've talked about the, the fall of humanity. We've talked about the flood. We've talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the promise that God gave them. We've, uh, we, we've seen how in, in Joseph's life, I love Joseph because his life, basically, the Holy Spirit at the, in Hebrews says, you know what Joseph's value was? He pointed ahead. We've seen how the utility and the value of all these stories and all these characters is that they point to Jesus, and that's what we're trying to do. We're looking at the Old Testament, and we're, try- we're, we're seeing Jesus. So we've looked at the Israelites going into Egypt, into bondage. We've looked at God delivering them. And now, in our readings, we're seeing them wandering around in the wilderness. Now, God said this really interesting thing. He said, I've got, I'm going to take you to a really good place. I'm not just going to take you out of bondage. You're not just coming out of Egypt, but I got a good promised land for you. I got a place flowing with milk and honey. I got a preferred future for you. 
I'm not just taking you out of bondage. I'm bringing you into something good. But he says, first of all, it says that God, when, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God didn't lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route. So there's a quick way for God to take the people from bondage into the promised land, but he decides, no, we're not going to do that because if the people are faced with battle, they might change their minds and they might turn around and want to go back because they, they might encounter some difficulties. Now, I think the reason why he, he was a little bit concerned that if they faced battle right away that they'd want to turn back is because they didn't really know him. They didn't really know who this guy was. So Moses says, uh, God says to Moses, I want you to go and, and set my people free. And he's like, well, who do I tell them that you are? Like, I don't think Moses even knew. So Moses has to go and give them the name of God. So, so they, they don't have this history. They've, they've lost the knowledge of God. They need to learn about him all over again. So he, he organizes this program for them. He takes them through the wilderness, and he shows them a series of really pretty impressive uh, feats that he does. He communicates to them in a pretty impressive way. So first of all, the way he brings them out of Egypt is nothing short of miraculous. He brings them to the edge of the sea, parts the waters, they walk through, turn around, see the Pharaoh chasing them, and then all of a sudden the waters come back in on the enemy and he's gone. Right away he says, you know what, your enemy, all those things chasing you are done. I'm more powerful than all that stuff, and that's what we have in our experience of baptism. You come up out of the water, all that stuff that was in your past, all that stuff that chases you, it's dead in the water. Died and buried with Christ, Romans says. It's gone, right? So we're coming up. That's, a, that's the first lesson they learn. First thing they see about God is that he's mighty and powerful over their enemies. They're wandering through the wilderness. They're starting to get thirsty. It's been three days. If you think about, like, I don't know, maybe two million people kicking up dust in each other's faces, and they're really thirsty. They haven't had any water at all. They finally get to water. And it's bitter. It's poison. They can't drink it. So God says to Moses, hey, go get that tree. Go throw the tree in the water, and the bitter water is going to be made sweet. And there we see God can provide for us, but there we see a type of the cross. The cross. Throw the cross into anything, and it turns the bitterness. It takes the poison out of it. And why? Because Jesus took the poison. He took it. So the cross changes everything. And it's there that he revealed himself as, I am the Lord, your healer. So they've got this, this, this revelation that God can take them out. He can deliver you from your bondage. He can take you away from your enemies. He can destroy them utterly. And he can heal you. And he can utterly transform your life. A couple days later, or let's say days, he, they're going and they're, they're hungry. They're complaining about their food situation. So God sends them angel food, manna from heaven. He shows them, you can trust me. I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to do it on a daily basis. <laughs> angel food cake, Pastor says. There's another miracle. They're, they're needing water. So if you can imagine this picture, just the rock's big enough to, to, to give water to hundreds of thousands of people. So just imagine the picture of this rock that's following them, giving them water. So they're having an absolutely supernatural visual experience. They're actually seeing something. And this is on top of the fact that there's a, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So they've got really visual things. They're seeing it right up close. There's a rock following them, and we're told that the rock that followed them was Christ. He's the source of living water. He's giving them water to drink. Incredible, incredible miracle. We saw the victory over the Amalekites. <laughs> this, this amazing victory, this type of the cross where they're, they're fighting, and who knows how good they were at battle. Like Presumably they weren't very good, because I don't think the Egyptians were too scared of them before Moses came along. 
They've just been making bricks and not doing too well at that, and they're probably not skilled, mighty warriors, right? So for them, it would have been an absolutely amazing lesson to learn that, hey, it doesn't really matter how well I'm doing down here. As long as Moses on the hill has got his arms up, we're winning. God's my victory. And the lesson there for us as Amalekites, the type of the flesh, is that we know that our victory over the flesh is won, not by what we're doing and how good we are, but by what happened on the hill at Golgotha. That's where our flesh was dealt with. That's where sin was dealt with. That's our victory is up on the hill. David says, you know, I look to the hills from whence cometh my help. I'm struggling. I'm feeling like I'm, I'm going down. I'm struggling with my flesh. Look to the hill. Look to Jesus. There's victory there. And then he shows them. We looked at this last week. He shows them the day of atonement, and he shows them that their sins are utterly gone. You know, this is, this is something they had to do every year, but for us, we have an atonement. We have a, we have a, a, a propitiation, and an experience of expiation where our sins are utterly removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And he needed to show them that so that they could move into the promised land without guilt. That's a really big deal. Personally, I'm convinced that maybe some of the reasons why people don't actually experience everything God has for them is, is not because, you know, they need to do something. It's because there's still that unresolved guilt. I can't quite walk into my destiny just yet. I can't quite march forth yet because I've still got that nagging conscience. I still feel a little bit bad about something that I did. If you've done bad and you need to do something to rectify it, do it. But I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus is enough to set you free in your conscience. The blood of Jesus is enough to do something in you, supernaturally touch you and allow you to feel the freedom to walk into something and not feel like, I'm not sure if God's going to come through for me because maybe, maybe he is still holding that sin against me. The Day of Atonement says no. The cross says no. The blood of Jesus says no. And the, the blood of bulls and goats said no from afar. But the blood of Jesus says no in my conscience. At the very core of who I am. Tomorrow, I'm going to wake up with a prophetic promise that says I'm marching forth. And I'm going to do it in the confidence that there's nothing. There's nothing I've done that's holding me back. There's nothing that I've done in my past that God says, no, you can't have that. He says our sins, we, he remembers no more. We shouldn't either, right? So this is some pretty ridiculous stuff, right? This is some stuff that they've seen. God's orchestrated this whole journey so that they, I think, so that they would trust him. They would come to believe in him so that when they got to the promised land, they'd be able to say, wow, we can do this. By our God, we can do it. So he's trying to develop this faith in them. So they get, this is where we're at in our readings. They get to the edge of the promised land, or close enough anyways to send in spies, and God says, take a, a representative of each tribe, send them in as spies, I want you to go look at the land. And I think the point of that was that he wanted them to know, not only can I bring you into this place, but the place that I promised you is actually as good as, as I told you it is. You're going to get a firsthand account of how good it is. Another reason why testimonies are so awesome. Thank you, Tina. There's a firsthand account. There's a good spy right there. A firsthand account of what Jesus can do for us. So he brings them to the edge, and he sends the spies in. And the spies, this, they come out. Now, 10 of the spies, this is their report. They say, we entered the land that you sent us to explore. It is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's everything you said it would be. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. Look at it. It's awesome. But, it's always the buts. But, but, but. God's so good. But, salvation, God promises you all this stuff. But, no buts. No buts. But the people, they say, living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. There's giants there. I mean, this can't happen. It's not going to happen. What we see is freaking us out. So they come back and they bring a bad report. 
Now, the impact of that bad report, it's pretty devastating. Because we see that it says then in Numbers 14, verse 1, then the whole community, when they hear this bad report, and this is what happens when you listen to but too much. You don't want to do that. Be careful how you hear. Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. They ro- their voices rose in the great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron, and they said, if only we died in Egypt, or even here in the wilderness. I mean, they're at the very edge. They can look in and see it. This might look like this. I hear every week how awesome God is, but there's a reason why I just can't enter it. No, there's no buts. Okay, so they get to the edge and they're like, oh my goodness, uh, th- this, is, this is so bad. We're going to die. Why is the Lord taking us out here just so we can die? And the funny thing is, is that God actually took them on this journey to deal with that very attitude. He was actually arranged those absolutely significant events in their life and their experience to inspire faith in order to stop them from having that response. So something got lost in translation. Something wasn't heard. You know, they're seeing it, they're engaging it, they're seeing miracles, they're hearing the message, but somehow it didn't actually get in. So God says this, Numbers 14, 11. He says, how long are these people going to treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me? Will they never believe me? Even after all the miraculous signs I've done among them, now tell them this, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things you heard, or I heard you say, you'll all drop dead in the wilderness because you complained against me. The only exceptions will be Caleb and Joshua. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then, so the whole community, infected by this, this doubt, this unbelief, the whole community said, you're all going to die. You're not going to get in. And it's funny that they're not getting in because of what they said. He says, I'm going to give you what you said. If you say you can't have it, you won't have it. God's literally made everything available to us. The limitation is between the ears, right? It really is. And then what comes out the mouth. So he's got a special treat reserved for the 10 that that had the bad report. It says, these ones who incited rebellion against the Lord, they were struck dead with a plague before the Lord dead. The end. It's ugly. (laughs) Death, destruction. It's there. So the question then is this. Where's Jesus and all that? Like, that's a pretty devastating story, right? A whole generation of people have this amazing promise. They, they, They go on the journey. They get right up to the edge, and then they don't go in. They don't get to experience the promise they were given. That's tragic. It's absolutely just just really heartbreaking. But Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he said, all these things are written for, for us as examples for us. So there's something for us here. There's something for us to learn. Don't learn that you need to freak out because God's going to kill you in the wilderness. There's something much more hopeful than that. But one thing we learn is that we're not actually headed towards a geographical location. And actually, that wasn't even true for them. I mean, it was, but there was something else going on. There's something else happening in the story, and we heard a little bit about that already. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 and 19, it says this, Remember what it says, Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God, even, even though they did hear his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt, and who, got, who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they'd never enter his rest. 
Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they couldn't enter his rest. So the New Testament writer of Hebrews, he's telling us, actually, you know what? There's something else going on here. It is about land for them. They're walking into a land, but, but the heart of it is the rest of God. It's about entering into his rest. And that's a big deal. It really is. It's a big deal for them, and it's a big deal for us. Therefore, the question that remains is how do we enter into his rest? If his rest is what we're supposed to enter into, I'm marching forth into his rest. I really am. I'm, I'm getting up tomorrow with a big promise. I can feel it right now today even. So Hebrews 3.19, it says, because of their unbelief, they weren't able to enter his rest. And the answer for them, the same answer they have is the answer we have. We enter in by faith. It is always about faith. Even back then, it was still about faith. See, Numbers 14, hear this again. How long, God says, will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me? Will they never believe me? All the laws, all that stuff that they had going on, and still God has it in his heart. I want people to trust me. They need to believe me. Even then, it was meant to point them to him. The signs and the miracles, it was meant to communicate something, to impart faith. It was a revelation. I'm a God who loves you. I'm more than able to bring you in, and I want to bring you in. You can trust me. I'm going to bring you in. And Hebrews 4, 2, it says, for indeed, this is crazy, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. See, God did communicate something very clear to them, but the word which they heard, it didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so again, as we heard earlier, there's a warning in the book of Hebrews. It says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of us seem to come short of it. Now, the funny thing is there's lots of places in the Bible where, as Pastor said, it says, fear not, fear not, fear not. And then here it says fear. Now, I think that's because in those other instances where he's saying fear not, he's trying to say, you know what, don't fear me. Don't question my intentions towards you. Don't fear that way. But right now, there, there actually is the possibility that if, you're, if you don't believe, you might not experience everything that I want you to have. And it's not because God's saying, eh, I told you to believe me, I want you to believe me, you're not pleasing me, you're not believing me. It's because literally the only way that you can experience the thing that God wants for you is by faith. That's it. And it's not because God has an anger problem or an evil disposition or, or, or he's trying to say, you know what, uh, I, I'm asking you something, you're not complying with me, therefore I'm not going to give it to you. No, it's because we literally can't do it. We, we don't have the capacity. It's not like God's worried that maybe we might do something that he says we should do, and then we're going to turn around and say, see, God, I could do it. You can't. You literally can't. You can't. You can't produce it yourself. You can't earn it. We really can't. So Paul says in Romans 4, uh, verse 16, he says, it's a faith that it might be according to, gra be according to grace. Everything that God wants to give us is his grace. We can't earn it. We can't do it. We can't qualify for it. We can't produce it. That's why it's by faith. Not because God's saying, you know, I'm, I'm really upset with you. You need to be able to say the things that I want you to say. No, it, it's because grace is the only, it's a gift. Faith is the only way to lay hold of it. There is no other way. And the opposite of faith is not just complaining. The opposite of faith is not just grumbling in the wilderness. The opposite of faith is, is trying to work for it. Jesus plus anything isn't faith. It still works. 
It really is. And we see this, and there's actually an example of this with the Israelites. We see in in Numbers chapter 14, God tells them you're not entering in. You're not going to do this. This place of promise, I'm going to give it to your descendants. So there is a promise for you, but you're not going to enter in because of your unbelief. And then it says the people defiantly pushed ahead towards the hill country, even though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's covenant left the camp. They still tried to get in. Now, isn't that weird? Because they were originally very afraid. They were terrified of the giants. They were terrified of the land. It was going to devour them. They couldn't beat them. It was as if they, they, they were afraid. But here, it's, where, where did that fear go? Now they're like, well, we're going to do it. We can do it. It's as if the original problem was we don't think that God will do it. But leave it up to us and we'll get it done. It's like taking a promise from God and saying, you know what? I'm going to flesh it out in my own strength. It's the same thing. They tried to do that, and it didn't work. It was an absolute disaster. It says the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in those hills came down, attacked them, and chased them back as far as Hormah. Their end was worse than their beginning. It's better off just to rest. It really is. And Paul says, you know what? If you try this in the New Covenant, it's equally disastrous. He says in Galatians, he says, I tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is going to profit you nothing. Jesus plus law is still law. Jesus plus works is still works. It's not rest. In fact, it's almost a uniquely anguishing thing because you're, you're so aware of the promise. It's so heightened in your mind. But the fact that you're pushing so hard yourself means you're still not experiencing it. And it's kind of internally devastating. It really is. So God, God wanted to develop faith in these people. He wanted to get them into the promised land. They needed faith to get in, but I think they also needed faith to enjoy it. They needed faith to unpack the land and to enjoy what was in the land. See, there were features in the promised land that they were to receive by faith and enter into by faith. That's why it was called a place of rest. The whole thing was supposed to be saturated in rest, not just the getting in. And we see that paralleled with Jesus. Jesus is our promised land. He is our rest, and all that we've been given in him is also unpacked and experienced and enjoyed in rest and by faith. So all that stuff you're going to march forth into, that's all getting unpacked in your world by just believing, by faith. It really is. See, the land, it was already a land flowing with milk and honey. It was already a good place. And we're going to see in a minute that there were actually really cool stuff in there that they could literally just walk into and enjoy. There were houses that they didn't build. They could just go in and live in the place. That's why the place was rest. I mean, if the land's already flowing with milk and honey, and you spend your time trying to make milk and honey flow, whatever you do to do that, you are unable to lay hold of the blessing that's there, not because it's not there, but because you are otherwise occupied. If it's flowing over here, and I just got to go over and say yes, but I spend my time over here digging away or milking cows or whatever, I can't do it. It doesn't mean it's not available. At any moment, I can stop. And I think there's an invitation for all of us. At any moment, if there's any strife, you can stop. Because it's already flowing. It's already flowing. It's already good stuff for us right there. So there are things in the promised land that I think parallel our life in Jesus. So I thought we'd look at a few of them. So the promised land, a land that's entered into by faith, a land characterized by rest. Jesus, 
We enter into him by rest. We unpack and we live in everything that he gives us by faith. The promised land, it was a place of covenant. Genesis 15, 18, when God originally speaks to Abraham about this land, he says it's a, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So a covenant is kind of like a, a contractual obligation. And, and there's a guarantee that comes with it. So there kind of is, a, there, there is, a, there is an element of rest even then because the, the, the idea of the, the covenant is that I, I know I'm going to experience it based on the trustworthiness of the person who made it. So on one hand, the original covenant, half of it was completely trustworthy. The other half was dependent on how well they did. And they later found out that they actually couldn't do it at all. They couldn't keep their end of the deal. So that's the shortcoming of the, the original covenant, that we couldn't do it. We couldn't live up to our obligations. Now, thankfully, Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus says he's instituting the Lord's Supper, the communion. He says he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. New covenant. And for me, blood speaks of the, the, the partnership and the, the, the fact that Jesus, a man, shed blood. Blood, a human feature. But the Bible tells us that the life is in the blood. So when I think about the blood of Jesus, I see that the covenant was kept, both sides of the covenant, man's side and God's side, was kept by Jesus. Therefore, all the contractual obligations of what it means to live in Jesus, all the obligations that I feel might be on me as a Christian, have been fully met, fully accomplished by Jesus. Therefore, it's a place of rest. I'm in rest. I'm not thinking, God, what do I owe you? What do I have to do for you today? How do I keep up my end of this deal? If I do it, you're going to save me. If I don't, uh-oh, maybe there's tomorrow. No, Jesus kept his side and he kept my side. It's done. It's done. It's a place of obligation that he fulfilled. The promised land. The promised land was a gift. Genesis 17, 8. He says, I will give you the entire land of Canaan. Our experience is Christ is a gift for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We didn't pull him down from heaven. He came voluntarily and he gave himself. And that's still true, actually. You don't pull down an experience with him. You have faith in him. It's all good. But salvation is a gift. Even the faith that helps us lay hold of it is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift. Our salvation, our life in Christ is a gift. Now, here's another thing. Sometimes there's strife. Sometimes there's a little bit of striving. Sometimes maybe you do something bad and you're a little bit worried about, well, what does that say about me? Well, you know what? The fact that you're, you're a new creation, you're the righteousness of God, you're holy, you're righteous, you're blameless, you've been made a partaker of the divine nature, that's also a gift. That's not something you need to work for. If you have anxiety and stress about your nature, your character, if you're worried and wondering, oh my goodness, am I good enough? Look at what it says, Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. It's a gift. You at the core of who you are, you've embraced Jesus Christ, you at your very core are a new person. The core of who you are is righteous, godly, blameless, and holy. And that's God's doing. Don't ever fret again about whether you're good enough. Don't ever fret again about whether you're, you know, what's going on on the inside of you, whether you're good enough, you're measuring up. No, you are. You are good. God made the original creation, looked at it, and, and said, that's good. That's good. How much more? The new creation. How much more does he see you raised up in Christ and says, it's good. It's good. No stress, no worry. Now, what about this? Sometimes, 
I, I know it happens. I've done it. I did it a long time ago. You get saved. You know you're saved by grace. You're okay with that. All right, I'm not praying to go to heaven every night. I know I'm going to heaven. It's all good. I know Jesus loves me. I know that he's resolved the issue of my sin. I know that I'm sanctified. I know that I'm holy by faith. But I, I got this real big desire. I want to serve God. I've heard about other people who do the gifts of the Spirit even. I want to do some of that stuff. I want to get involved. I want to serve him. I want to see the miraculous. And then you get agitated and you get into works and you, you think, oh my goodness, well, maybe people who do that, maybe they pray so often. Maybe they read so much Bible. Maybe they do this or maybe they don't do that. Maybe if I do this or don't do that like them, then I'm going to start to get to do the ministry stuff and I'm going to start to see the power of God in my life. And now instead of working for your salvation and working for your holiness, you're working for your ministry. You're working for seeing God move through your life. Well, the thing about that is even that is a gift. Even the things that God would give you and work through you and express in your life, even that is a gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, it talks about the gifts of the Spirit as charisms, as grace gifts. And the same word to describe the gift of the Holy Spirit that he would give you. Oh my goodness, I want to prophesy more. So maybe if I just do this or do that, I'm going to start to prophesy. I'm going to start to operate in the gifts of healing. So I better, I better do this and I better do that. Well, no, all you got to do is receive the gifts. It's the exact same word for gifts as it is for the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, most of us would not believe that we need to earn our salvation and we can earn eternal life. But then there's the temptation to just try and earn the movement and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you want that, if that's what you want to march forth into tomorrow, rest. Believe. It's done. It's a gift. It's a grace gift. You can walk in that today. You can walk in the gifts of the Spirit today because it's a gift. Absolutely is. The promised land. Genesis 17, 8. It's a place of relationship. He said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you the entire land and I will be their God. It's a place of, of knowing God intimately and personally. And that's what we have in Jesus. We have a relationship with him. We really do. Now, this is a feature of what it means to be in Christ. This is a feature of the new covenant. Hebrews 8.11, it says, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So the person that you've put on a pedestal and said, I want to know God like they do, says, From the least of them to the greatest, and everywhere in between. I'm worried if I don't live right, I might get a seat from God that's like 6,000 miles to his right. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you can say today, I have eternal life. I've said yes to Jesus and he lives inside of me. You know him, you've experienced him and don't buy into the lie that you can get any closer. Don't buy into the lie that you can even, that you don't know him. You do. You know him so intimately. You've experienced him. That word know is actually like a husband and a wife know each other. You know him. You've actually engaged him. He's engaged you at a deep personal level. You've become one spirit with him. You do know him. You really do. So it's a place of relationship. And there's no stress and there's no striving in it. He says, everyone will know me. He puts the effort in. He's communicating himself to us. 
That's his promise. Don't, don't stress about it. I mean, it's good to be like, I want to know you. Paul said, I press on that I might know him. The fellowship of his sufferings. There is a pressing on. But do you know why Paul could do that? Because he knew that the grace of God was meeting him. Every step he took, God was already there in his face. And he's just saying, yes. 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 So don't stress over it. Be at rest. Be at rest even about your knowing God. Because he's way more committed to it than you are. Promise. The promised land, it's a, it's a place of fruitfulness. Some of us want to bear fruit. We want to uh, have a good impact in our lives. We want to see the footprint of our lives. It means something. It matters. I've done something that matters. I've done something of value. Well, the promised land, Numbers verse 13, says they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large it took two of them to carry on a pole. I mean, this is the kind of place where the fruit is big. The new covenant is a place of fruitfulness. Life in Christ is a place of fruitfulness. Now, how do you bear fruit? Do you bear fruit by trying real hard? Well, Jesus put an axe to the root of that tree. He said, no, you just abide in me. Just live in him. Abide. Abide isn't a funny old word that means do a bunch of stuff. It's actually an old word that says just live. Just live. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. I can't help it. I'm going to bear fruit. I really am. And you know what? On the off chance that I don't, on the off chance that I do something stupid, and, and, and I'm kind of like, yeah, I wonder, maybe that wasn't a good verse. Do you know what God does when that happens? He comes alongside you, and he picks you up. He reminds you of who you are. He breathes on you, and you're all good. Easy. Easy. It's a place of fruitfulness. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I hate that one. It's fruit. It actually really is. I mean, there's the, you can get really, really worked up over, over how you think that you're doing the output of, say, your personality, your character. I hate this one. I hate patience. I, I hate it. And I used to interpret annoying situations in life as God testing me, trying to work out patience in my life. If that situation ever arises and I got to let patience have its perfect work, do you know what I do now? I just sit back and I say, Jesus, you're in me. Holy Spirit, the fruit of patience is going to come out. And it does. And the test becomes a revelation to me that he is able to pass every test. And he has already. It's not an evaluation of me and my character. Being loving, being kind, being faithful, all that stuff, all the good things that we want to be, all this stuff that there's a crazy version of Christianity that's all about making you learn how to become and do is actually a gift. It actually flows out of you. The whole character development thing, it, it really is a process of learning that Jesus in me is, is as holy as God ever wants, right? I'm just going to enjoy the fact that he lives inside of me. It's a place of dwellings. Deuteronomy 6.10, the promised land is a land with large, prosperous cities that you didn't build. I have a new dwelling in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.3 says, but of him am I in Christ Jesus. He put me in Christ. I got, a new I got a new space. I got a new house. I'm living in Jesus. He said, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. And that place that he prepared was in himself and in the Father. I got a new living place. And he's got a new living place too. Acts 7 says, the Most High doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. God says, what house will you build for me? What's the place of my rest? Is not my hand made all these things. We're now the temple of the living God. Amen. His spirit lives in me. I'm not striving real hard to attract him. He's already here. He lives right here. 
right here. The promised land is a place of abundance and provision. Deuteronomy 6.11, it says, the houses that I'm going to give you, you don't have to waste your time trying to build them. I'm going to give them to you. These houses are richly stocked with goods that you didn't produce. It's already there. You don't even have to go shopping. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, God is able to make all grace abound towards me. That me having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Part of entering into his rest is, is seeing that in Christ Jesus, there's grace coming towards me, not just for the salvation of my soul, but for the, the caring of my body and the providing of my life. And it's by grace. I give. I get to give. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I enjoy giving. I engage. You know, we got to know God's ways. But it's by grace. There is grace abounding towards you. And part of the package deal of grace that's coming your way is provision. It's easy. Faith. Believe. Enter into his rest. Let there be rest regarding your finances. Let there be rest regarding your, your, your materiality. It's all good. The promised land is a place of uh, satisfied thirst, a place of life-giving water. Deuteronomy 6.11 says, You'll draw water from cisterns that you didn't dig. I'm not trying to redig a well to experience Jesus. He's, he's put one in me. He did all, all, all the hard work. He dug the hole, everything. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst, and the water I give him will become in him a fountain of living water because he's given it to me. He's made me a fountain of living water, and he's pulling deep inside of me, and it's coming out of me. If I'm working really hard, I'm probably clogging it up. <laughs> right? It's already flowing. There's nothing to do. You're getting in the way. Just enjoy it. Let it flow. It's coming. It's there. There is a well in you springing up into everlasting life. It's fantastic. It, the promised land is a place of food, sustenance, and satisfaction. Deuteronomy 6.11 again, it says you're going to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. How much, how much lack of rest, how much stress, how much anxiety is out there because people aren't satisfied? They don't feel full. So it's bouncing from one experience to another or one chemical to another or something like that, and there's no rest. But Jesus says, you know what? I'm able to touch you in such a way that I'm going to make you content. You're going to feel full. You're going to be satisfied in your life. You're going to want for nothing more. You're going to be completely and utterly satisfied. So we get to eat of him freely. That's the promised land. Vineyards you didn't build, create, whatever. I have an access to Jesus who satisfies my soul, and I don't have to work it up. I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to do anything. If I am, I'm probably not just enjoying the fact that he's here, and he satisfies me completely. The promised land is a place of anointing. He says, olive trees you didn't plant. I think of olive trees. I think of oil. I think of Holy Spirit. And this is, this is, a, this is a pretty cool one. This is, this is where you, you get to experience the anointing. This is where you get to experience the flow of Holy Spirit on and all over your life. And you didn't do the work to get it. See, it's, it's funny, sometimes we, like I said earlier about do, doing ministry stuff, we're having, you know, seeing the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's, there's the religion to get saved. Some of us are past that. There's the religion to get holy. Some of us are past that. But then there's the religion to get more experience of God. There's the religion to try and have more of these heavenly, glorious experiences. 
or, or to, to feel God or anything like that. And even that is a gift. Even the pouring out of the oil of God in your life is because God's graciously done it. Acts 2.33, my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It talks to Jesus and it says, because he was exalted to the right hand, he received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. Everything to qualify to receive Holy Spirit was done by Jesus. That's why I get to experience the oil. All of trees I didn't plant. Jesus did the work. Jesus did the hard work to qualify for the promise of the Father. And in him, I'm qualified. I've got the anointing of God all over me because of Jesus, because I'm in him. That's why I'm anointed. Galatians 3, he says, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, does God give the spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law or because you believe what you heard? He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And this is how Paul interpreted the promised land, that we might receive by faith the promise of the spirit. You receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. You really do. The promised land is a place of freedom. It's a place of safety. It's a place of deliverance. Again, Deuteronomy 6, it says, Well, hey, when you go into this land, be careful you don't forget me. I brought you out of slavery. There's an experience of freedom. There's a rest in Christ that brings about freedom. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Christ makes us free. Not us. Christ does. That's why it's a place of rest. I'm not striving to get free. That thing I don't like, that thing I feel like I'm bondage to. Guess what? It was done at the cross. It really was. Rest is a place of rest. John 8, 32. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. Make you free. And it literally throughout the Bible, it goes on and on and on. The promises of God, the unpacking of everything that's ours in Jesus is by faith. From beginning to end, first to last. Healing and wholeness. Another thing, one of my favorite verses, this is where they prayed for the guy or they, they healed the guy at the, the gate beautiful, I think it was. And it says, through faith in his name made this man strong. Yes, faith which comes through him has given this man perfect soundness or absolute wholeness. I want healing of mind, soul, and body. You know how you have that? Faith in the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. Faith. Healing comes through faith. I think the, the Apostle Peter even said, why are you looking at me as though by my own power or piety I made this guy whole? No. No, it's through faith in his name. So healing. It's an experience of rest. Well, what about warfare? The promised land. They did lots of battle. There was yelling and stuff at walls. Things like that. Colossians 2.15 says, in this way, he disarmed spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them at the cross. Even the warfare that we're engaged in, and we are, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and all that. Even that's a warfare from a place of rest. He's done it all. And I think as we, we embrace that, as we embrace the revelation of what he's done, as we, as we rest, we're going to see the things that we're all like, oh my goodness, I just want this. I just need this. It's actually going to start to happen, and it's going to happen in rest. It really is. These things are going to start to flow. So I've got two conclusions here for you. And the first one is this. You are complete in Christ in absolutely every aspect of your life. You're not just going to heaven. Heaven has come to you. Everything that you need. Jesus is it for everything. Everything. 
Colossians 2.10 says that you're complete through your union with Christ. And then the second conclusion is this, is that we unpack and experience every aspect of life in Christ through faith. We're saved by faith. We experience healing, get all that stuff. It's faith from first to last. So literally, believe and enjoy. See the, the uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight again. Here it is. Just a different translation. It says, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. So we got, we got stuff to do. Jesus has a beautiful plan of partnership with him. There's things to do. But he says, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So come to him. That's it. That, that, that's rest. We're going to march forth into rest. And rest, like I said, it's not inaction. It's not passivity. It's a place of knowing, you know, I'm, I'm marching into the rain. I'm marching into the activity of the Spirit of God in and through me. I might find myself actually doing more than I've ever done before. I might find myself living with a passion and just a for life that's more than I've ever had before. But it'll be accompanied by rest. I'm going to feel good about it. There's no strife and striving attached to it because it's not by might or by power. It says the Lord. It's by his spirit. And it's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies who says that. Isn't that crazy? It says the Lord of heaven's armies says it's not by might nor by power. The contradiction there says it all. It's by his spirit. Let's stand up together, guys. So the Israelites, they had a promise. They had a promise of land. They had a preferred future. And Jesus has a preferred future for each and every single one of us. It's the relationship with him, and it's unpacking it together with him, and it's all by faith. So if there's, uh, if there's anybody today, just before we do anything else, if there's anyone here today who's never actually said, you know what, I know Jesus, and Jesus knows me. Just a big yes to Jesus. I want to do life with you, Jesus. I want the preferred future that you have for me. If you've never before been able to acknowledge that Jesus Christ loves you, he's done it all for you, and today's that day for you. If you're here today and you're like, I want that, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to count to three. All you got to do is throw your hand up in the air. We'll all pray together. Every eye closed and head bowed, please. If that's you here today, one, two, three. All right, well, all of us, all of us, Jesus has been here today. Jesus is in the house, and he's been speaking to us. And we don't want to miss, we don't want to move away from that prophetic moment when God does something and he speaks to us so clearly about something. We're going to march forth. We really are, and we're going to do it in rest. All that stuff that's in your mind, all that stuff that is a vision for you that you're going to march forward into, you're going to do it from a place of rest because God has promised it, and it's, it's, it's by faith. So many times in the Bible, Jesus is constantly saying, it's by faith. He says, if you only believe, you're going to see the glory of God. He says, if you only have faith, you're going to speak to that mountain, and you're going to say, be removed. They asked Jesus, they said, well, how do I do the works of God? And he said, just believe. Just believe. He said, if you believe, rivers of living water will come out constantly. Just believe, just believe, just believe. And it's not that difficult because he's here to speak to us. See, Joshua, Joshua, Caleb, it says Caleb was of a different spirit. We're of a different spirit. We have the same spirit of faith. Therefore, we speak. We speak. We confidently speak. 
Right now, Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for giving us the gift of your son, and in him you've freely given us all things. I thank you, Jesus, that we're all going to unpack the fullness of what it means to be in Christ and Christ in us. Mountains are going to move before us. There's going to be shouts of grace, grace, and things are going to move. We're walking into, we're entering into something new. You really are, and it's going to be characterized by the rest and by the grace of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The sky really is the limit with you. We bless you. All things are possible. To who? To those who believe. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. And we thank you so much. All right, if I could just have the people who are ministering at the altar to come forward. And if you've got a need today, maybe there's a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of stress, a little bit of unrest in you today, come forward, get prayer. Respond to the Lord. Thank you, Father. Bless us. We bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen.